Welcome to the Contemplative Science Podcast, brought to you by Monash University. This is the podcast for anyone interested in what lives on the overlap of cutting-edge science and ancient spiritual practices. From monks to neuroscientists, our expert guests join Dr. Mark Miller and Jamie Slevin to explain how contemplative practices work, and crucially, how they can help us improve our lives. Join us each week for Ancient Wisdom Made Practical. Welcome back to the Contemplative Science Podcast. My name is Jamie, and as always, I'm joined by co-host Dr. Mark Miller. Mark, how are you, man? Yeah, I'm great. I'm looking forward to this episode because the person we have on is somebody that I really respect in the field. Their research informs a lot of my research. This is one of the people that I follow their work really closely, and I'm always really inspired by what they're working on and what they're saying. I'm excited. Yeah, so with no further ado, today we are lucky enough to be welcoming Dr. Adam Saffron onto the show. Adam is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research at John Hopkins Medicine. He is a meditation practitioner and his work has focused on characterizing the nature of preferences and motivation from mechanistic, developmental and evolutionary perspectives. Adam, how are you? I'm doing great. Really happy to be here with you too. So we are already using psychedelics in well-being spaces and increasingly in research. Now today we have a number of questions around that, this what we know, what we don't, where it's helpful and where it isn't. But before we start, I wanted to ask you, what is the current state of play when it comes to research today into using psychedelics to help well-being? Mm. Hotly contested with <laughs> uh, a lot of, I believe, warranted enthusiasm. I believe also some warranted caution. Yeah, good. That's the whole playing field. So that's a good start, right? <laughs> Big debate, lots to be hopeful for, some to be careful of. Yeah, that's, that's the state of play, I'd say. There's a lot of very um, promising new work coming out, some not so new. Ideas of, of linking psychedelic experiences to increased personality openness, increased psychological flexibility. There's a kind of mixed literature there in terms of a part of the mixing is like, what do we mean by flexibility? Like if we're talking about like your ability to, let's say, pivot with relation to some framing of events to influence your emotional state, that's one kind of flexibility, but that not, might not be the same kind of flexibility as like switching tasks and some sort of like working memory, like figuring out a rule or something like that. So, but there is some evidence that psychedelics might help increase psychological flexibility, much more mixed on cognitive flexibility. And this might mediate some capacities to have positive long-term change sometimes a, a radical change in terms of this idea though of a few sessions and you can turn around someone who's like stuck in a pattern and allow them to have adopt new patterns. That's almost unprecedented in like psychiatric practice. And so the question will be like, how robust are these results? I, I think there's many reasons though to think psychedelics are a game changer for practice, for people's ability to help themselves and others. But it's only recent that, you know, we could really start start to do the kinds of studies we need to do to have reliable knowledge on this, I'd say. So when you say psychological flexibility, the benefit there, right, is that lots of psychopathologies and lots of sort of suboptimal ways of living are about sort of being stuck, right? Sort of depression can be typified as a kind of stuck, you know, emotional cognitive space. And I guess addiction is like that as well. Like maybe everything has a little bit of that stickiness in it. And so your point is, is that psychedelics look like they have an impact on cognitive 
flexibility or psychological flexibility point there is that the reason why that supports well-being is because it can break up those sticky patterns is that right that would be the idea and i think it's very much in the spirit of your work and like also this kind of dynamic character to well-being the ability to like move in and out of states and not get stuck in a single state Right. kind of like breathing this to it. Do we know how that happens? Like how does how do psychedelics do that? I mean, do we know do we know yet like what the mechanistic sort of story is for what psychological flexibility looks like or I mean what what is that? I would say no. Yeah, okay. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, we have some ideas. No is a little too harsh. But you know, that depends what you mean by no. So at a mechanistic level, there's these ideas largely put forward by Robin Carhart Harris, which I find to be um compelling in many respects. Yeah. One is that basically you are putting the brain into a state of increased entropy where you could have more combinatorics, more uh, novel patterns that you might not otherwise have. So you break it out of its usual, somewhat more ordered state of business as usual, put it into a temporarily uh, elevated, you could even maybe say elevated state of consciousness, maybe even technically speaking. Uh, and then under those conditions, People can explore new ways of being and then potentially bake them in with this period of elevated plasticity you see with psychedelics. Sometimes psychedelics are referred to as plastogens, and this is one model of their action. There's some really interesting data showing that you can open these plasticity windows. Um, uh, Gould Dolan um, at Hopkins is doing really excellent work there, where it seems like the intensity of the trip seems to correlate with the extent of opening these these windows of, of juvenile-like plasticity in the brain, where whatever it was you were exploring like and continue to explore during this integration window and during this aftermath, you have an opportunity where the mechanisms are still unclear. It could involve things like um, loosening these matrices that sort of like keep the synapses, the connections between neurons bound in place and actually letting those be a little bit more fluid, letting those like reconfigure a bit more. But it seems to be that you, know, you can get anywhere from you know, a couple hours to potentially with something like ibogaine, maybe two months of an elevated plasticity window. And so in addition to this idea of like plasticity windows opening on this like mechanistic level of like neurons wiring themselves up, there might be a, a kind of like immediate plasticity that happens where your normal assumptions are relaxed. And the benefit of them being relaxed when it comes to things like potentially depression is effectively that the depression was in some way the result of these assumptions and I use the word assumptions sort of vaguely. And as soon as you change those assumptions, oh my God, you might see results that you haven't seen in other areas. Where is the air, where is the caution then? Yeah, because that all sounds like good news, right? It sounds like, well, look, you've got sort of stuck patterns. You want to like unstick them. You can either go through years of therapy or you can do this in a meditative training program, but you could also just, you know, take a pill or take a hit. And then, uh, you know, the brain heats up and these things break down and then it cools down and you're kind of better. But that can't be the whole story, I think, right? Otherwise, otherwise that, uh, you know, everybody should be sort of doing this. Maybe everybody should be doing this. I'm not sure. There are schools of thought, and I don't think they're completely without merit, that actually think that's a good part of the story. That actually there is something kind of univalenced about the psychedelic experience where there is a kind of like, Blast them to the moon, let the natural healer take over. <laughs> Just burn. You know what? The house is no good. Let's burn the house down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then you can grow something new. Yeah, I hear that. <laughs> and I don't think that's 100% without merit, that basically a lot of people might benefit from basically having their assumptions shaken up and having 
kind of like limit experience of, of sorts and that maybe if this experience involves things like a kind of forced surrender or deep acceptance, including with respect to things that were hard to face, that that actually could like, that does seem to be a somewhat reliable thing that happens with higher doses. And so if you could control that, this would be basically in a way like the Hopkins model of psychedelic psychotherapy, which is you, you shoot them into space under basic supportive conditions in case something goes wrong, but it's largely self-directed. That being said, it's not the whole story. One set of risks I think would be told just at the level of what we were just describing in terms of like this relaxation of beliefs and another also in terms of potentially strengthened beliefs. And so it seems there probably isn't one story of psychedelics, just like there's not one story of meditation. What is the practice? What is the substance? What is the dose? What is the set? What is the setting? Could be very different regimes that are brought forth. And so how many different psychedelic accounts do we need? Even if across all of them, there's general principles, very similar, I'd say to meditation and continuous with it. The dangers, let's say we're just talking about relaxed beliefs. Well, some of these beliefs you're relaxing, you could think of maybe as a kind of like epistemic hygiene. Like those beliefs were there for a reason. They, some of the reason they could be there is just they were good to be, be good at being there. It was like malware. And like, you just, you know, maybe it's great that it gets uninstalled, but some of it ain't malware. Some of it's like the OS. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and so who knows what could come in under those like destabilized conditions. Like, you know, yeah. a paradigm shift is a, it's a promising thing, but it's a perilous thing too. Yeah. Like, it's just not guaranteed that, that what you shift to, it could be a, a deepening of what came before, potentially the pathological elements. Yeah. It could be something completely different that's beneficial or harmful. And so the other thing I was mentioning is you could potentially get a direct strength thing. And so one thing I've been focusing on is that it's not clear to me that you would always get this sort of desynchronization from psychedelics. So psychedelics, they seem to largely act on this class of receptors called 5-HT2A. And so serotonin has like, depending on how you count, about 14 classes of receptors. And so what they will do is they will increase the gain or the excitability of the parts of the brain, um, these they're called deep pyramidal neurons, they'll loop with the thalamus and they'll form these big synchronous complexes that we were talking about earlier in terms of these might encode, these potentially would encode your beliefs. But it's not clear that any increasing of gain on those units that shoot for distance and synchronize should cause them to desynchronize. It, it might be the case that like, as you increase the stimulation, you're actually increasing their ability to recruit themselves into these like coalitions of mutually active neurons. And this would be a strength in belief. It feels as if in some ways, like what you're doing when we're talking about well-being and psychedelics is in some ways rolling the dice. Like, as you say, there's a certain, you might be the type of person and there might be more information that comes out around this such that it can be designed like a Prozac, but it sounds like the shoot to the moon and let the thing recover. Sounds brilliant under the assumption that, well, it recovers and is a natural recoverer, but sounds less appealing in some ways when you go, well, look, it could strengthen some beliefs. We've all had people sort of in our lives, communities, our networks who have had bad experiences. I guess the question that emerges is, do you see this as a future staple of well-being, or do you think there's just so much uncertainty that's inherent to it that isn't a matter of lack of information? they'll always end up being slightly ambitious or risky. That is like the key question. Like, is this psychedelic renaissance, like, is it, is it like a revolution or a slow motion train wreck? Uh, <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, the answer might be yes. In terms of like, like you just said, like 
staple of well-being. And that's a, I don't know, and I don't, I don't think we can rule it out, and I don't think we can be assured. I think if, for instance, though, the best practices of contemplative science are applied, and if a lot of the insights from contemplative science and actually contemplative practice are combined with psychedelic interventions, then maybe it should be a staple. But in the current kind of roll the dice setup, set even though there are some things that make you know the dice loaded to be more positive outcomes, you know, like screening out people with you know potential risk factors. Although that itself, like those, might be the people who need it the most, right? But I think that's something to aspire to, and then it's possible, but will only actually be realizable if there is some sort of this is a personal opinion integration with contemplative practice and the best practices of contemplative practice. That's sort of a good segue too. So given your research, if we think about just contemplative training by itself, is it doing similar things? Can we see similar sort of mechanisms in play just in contemplative practice? Because if we can, then there might be, I don't know, there's something to be said for contemplative training can be done in a slower, more progressive, more skill-based way. Like you're not just getting shot to the moon, rather you're developing skills and abilities. You're letting states become traits slowly over time. Maybe there's something, you know, maybe there's something crucially different going on between psychedelics and different kinds of contemplative training where one would be incomplete without the other. There seems to be huge overlap, but there are also distinct things that you just mentioned, like the gradualness, the controllability, and maybe though the controllability potentially for better and worse. So there's within like psychedelic psychotherapeutic thought, like some people, for instance, would try to prepare the person more so that their entry is more in choice, is more, it feels good to them. And so that the whole experience might be smooth and copacetic and like puts them in a state of maybe you know, some of the aspects of the mystic experience, like this deep positivity and like openness to the world with the goal being like ease them in. But there's other schools yeah. of thought, which is like, go for forced surrender, go for an experience that's so overwhelming that you have no choice but to let go. And there does seem to be a kind of a semi-paradoxical thing where higher doses might actually be more univalenced in some ways. When it goes bad, it might really, really go bad. But there seems to be like this middle regime where you might try to control things more. And that's where things might, to, might start to go south or sideways, which is like where you're kind of bringing this like controlling impulse to something that's hard to control with a lot of stuff coming up that you might not have been looking at. Some of it might be real stuff. Some of it might be just a delusion, but you don't know. But the, with meditation and the similarities, I don't think we've done enough work to really nail this down, but there are, in both cases, increased brain complexity measures, increased entropy has been associated with both. You do see this common reduction in some of the slower rhythms of the brain, like alpha, some reduction in beta from uh, the particular, I think, the posterior cortices. And this is basically has been correlated with things like senses of ego transcendence, like an egoless experience, both in the context of meditation and psychedelics. And so there's also some other things like, for instance, like another way you might, for instance, potentially interpret increased gamma associated with some meditative states. You could think of that actually as when you relax your, your, your beliefs, your prior beliefs, your expectations, more novel information can make it in. And that's thought to be encoded potentially gamma frequencies, like the novel information that updates you. So you're not, fil you're not filtering out things 
anymore because you don't know what's going on. So you're more sensitive to new information to come in. And and so maybe, you know, that's a commonality in meditation going like more naive days uh, or, or just more like right. beginner's mind, beginner's mind in a way, right? You're open to insight because you're not stuck in one way of seeing the world. So you're open to see it in a new sort of exciting way. Yes, <laughs> that seems to be common and maybe like a, like a core powerful potential for change in both psychedelics and contemplative practice. But as you're also saying though, there's some key differences like the gradualness, the controllability of the process. And with that gradualness, being able to integrate it more into things like a supportive community, a value system, yeah. like as opposed to trying to compress everything with this like strapping rockets to your back and going down the mountain, you know? <laughs> it's so interesting, you know, we're finding the exact same, I find the exact same split between camps in the Buddhist meditation communities also. Get a sort of sense that some people think just jumping right into insight practices and selfless generating practices and emptiness practices is the way to go, like just sort of shooting for the moon without any of the support structure in play. And you have other people saying, no, you need to have really rich, developed senses of being in a field of love and care. You need to really sort of purify the heart, be in a good, wholesome place before you start jeopardizing your belief networks by looking closely at the sort of cracks between what you take yourself to be and what the world is like. And I've just got to say, like, uh, you know, I turned 42 this year. I've been practicing for a couple of decades. And at the end of being a pretty extreme practitioner, it makes me feel so wobbly in my self to think about this, just like, just shoot for it, you know, just break it up, hope for the best. I just think like, oh my goodness, don't, don't do that at all. Start with love, start with love, get, get into a place where you feel really safe being a human and then slowly, methodically, and with like lots of support, start poking holes in your, in your like potential beliefs about who you are. I mean, but that, like what you just said, start with love. Like, I actually wonder whether like, if we could like, somehow like blast this to like every psychedelic researcher and make that their focus like would that be the difference between right. the revolution and the train wreck right like eight solid weeks or three months of like really deep abiding in care fields doing love and kindness doing compassion training getting those things up and strong i mean lots of traditions buddhist traditions talk about using that as a container and then growing your insight training within that container and then maybe it could be a staple and then maybe it ought to be a staple, but but I think without that, it very much is uh, that that's a, that's a risky thing to have as a staple in the in the in the medicine cabinet. Yeah, <laughs> I want to move it just for a second to something that people often I often think about when we think about psychedelics, which is creativity. People describe themselves as being more creative. You get people tell you I'm microdosing being a source of creativity. Why, I mean, number one, is there any evidence that psychedelics do aid creativity? And if so, why? I think there's a decent and messy evidence base on psychedelics. Well, messy with respect to almost everything. I think you'd say that for the evidence base for most things with psychedelics, but the creativity literature is one of the, I think, more well-developed in some ways because that is an intuition a lot of people had, and I think they had it for a reason. And it seems like to the degree there's a mess, there is some mess there. It seems part of it might be distinguishing between more convergent and divergent forms of creativity. And so, and, and it seems like this could potentially vary with the type of psychedelic intervention you're doing. So, you know, divergent creativity, like having more novelty about it, more exploration, but 
you might not be coming up with anything particularly useful for any given purpose that you can see. It might be useful down the line. It might be like the most useful thing eventually, but in, in the moment you're trying to solve a particular problem, diversion creativity is not what you want. Conversion creativity though would be the thing where it's like, okay, I'm like a new, like a, like one of those clever crows. And if I take the hook and I bend it like this, it's like, boom, nailed it. Like, so whether that's positively impacted by psychedelics, very, very unclear, probably not. And maybe especially not for things like the bigger doses. Maybe there's some cases where for smaller doses, you might get an effect, but is it above and beyond what you would get from, let's say an active placebo? Like I gave you a caffeine pill, not clear that you're getting better conversion creativity effects. Uh, for anything, basically, in medicine, maybe all of the human condition might be just like self-fulfilling prophecies and expectation. Kind of like Dumbo's magic feather, like if you think you can, then you like, live into it and you set up like a learning curriculum for yourself and you can become more creative just from having the assumption, I am more creative now. Like that can help, but it could also be like you think you're more creative and then like you might be less evaluative and you might be hurting along some dimensions of the, you know, it's both like this proposing a lot of different things. And then, you know, it's, it's like a two-step process of you have like the novel forms, kind of like evolution, and then you select the good ones. And, and so the selection part, the, the discernment of picking up the right forms, that's going to be an important part also. And it, that doesn't seem to be particularly helped by the larger doses, but coming up with the initial like broader repertoire of things you wouldn't have considered otherwise seems to be there across the board and, and also though dependent on your expectancy of will I be more creative? Do I feel brave enough to try the different thing? Am I giving myself the license to try to see something different? And there could be a direct story to be told along the lines of things like rebus or Cebus effects where it's like things are manifesting that wouldn't bubble up otherwise and so that's the source of creativity. Or if you do have like an elevated like arousal or consciousness level, you might be a little bit more like on point and be able to do more like creative synthesis that way. That's a fair reflection of the whole state of affairs across uh, well-being, creativity, etc. I want to just move this for a moment to free will. You've written about psychedelics and free will, which is never, which isn't a combination I'd ever considered before. Why is psychedelics or psychedelic experiences? interesting in the context of free will. If you actually like look at that recent like metaphysical beliefs study, psychedelics tend to, at least in the context of community practice, tend to push people in a more fatalistic direction. That's not necessarily incompatible with free will. Like you can, for instance, be a determinist and you believe your, your agency is a meaningful thing at the same time. You could hold both those beliefs. I think most philosophers do, but there is a tension there. And so I guess in terms of the connections to free will, I'm wondering about both using psychedelics as a probe to better understand the mechanisms of free will, also wondering whether the context of agency might explain some of the story of the mechanisms involved and why they were selected in evolution. There's an idea with psychedelics that the frames we have become self-fulfilling prophecies. And different frames might have different utilities. And there might be like an, a difficulty, like the desire to even separate like psychedelics from like something like placebo responding in some ways might be wrong-headed. And then in some ways, psychedelics could be like amplifying your expectation and you actually want to leverage it and harness it. So, so bring, try to bring that together. With free will, it seems that there is a tension in that people want both the free part and the willing part. And they exist in a kind of state of dynamic tension. And like the language seems to be a little bit wise in my opinion, where it's like you want the agency, you want to be able to get the things you want, but you also do 
want the more like libertarian type free will of like being a little bit of an uncaused cause. Like you want to be able to draw a wild card, break free of the past. With psychedelics, if psychedelics can enhance your ability to imagine things, then this in theory could be an intention amplifier. And so in theory, this could be a free will amplifier. And I actually wonder if the 5-HT2A system, most of its selection might've been less well understood in terms of like relaxing your beliefs and becoming more open to things. I think that's crucially important, but actually the most of the selection might've been almost at the level of enhancing willing and agency. And one more quick thing about like the relaxation. So I've actually been wondering whether the psychedelic level of stimulation of those pathways might usually only occur maybe involving the endogenous DMT system and maybe occurring in the context of mating and reproduction. That actually most of the selection was like the opposite of what people are thinking of now in terms of like this greater openness to things. And that from Rebus, that this was a part of it, but actually most of it was you being more of like a directed agent was most of it. There's a challenge and Cebus, there's a challenge and that these psychedelic pathways are actually trying to get you to double down on your predictions and become a little more imaginative and push harder. <laughs> but that there's a certain point where they're not doing that. And I'm wondering whether most of the evolution for that was actually, this is how you pair bond and this is how parents bond with their children. And so what you're relaxing is your core sense of self to open up yourself to someone else. Oh, oh, it's amazing. Right. I'm just starting to catch it now. Right. Like we don't know, but that's what I'm wondering. <laughs> I love talking with you, Adam. It's such a delight to talk about your research because this is, this is not an easy, simple topic, right? It's a complex topic. I like every story where sort of both ends of the scale look like they come into play. One is you have a greater amount of flexibility that's being generated, but we have also this evidence that these circuits are also for directed behaviors. So you have a sort of balancing between opening and direction. And I was sort of wondering there, I was just waiting to jump in and be like, I don't really get why that would be beneficial for mating or like, these sorts of attractions, but you're right. I see like you could be directed towards a partner, towards your children. And the openness is to sort of include them by giving up your own self-centeredness in a way so that you're able to include more maybe in your empathic, in your empathic circle. Well, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating research line. I, I wonder if that was initial selection. And then I, one more thing would be, I wonder, is this actually part of the story of uniquely human cooperativity that helped us to jumpstart cumulative culture? Did you have these like pathways set up for like initially selected for these other contexts, but then later it became kind of like a hive mind switch where basically maybe you could get some fairly rapid evolution of these pathways that are involved in psychedelics as part of the evolution of human cognitive modernity where the cognitive modernity is of a socio-emotional variety of our ability to learn from each other and be open to each other. I'm not saying, you know, like the stoned ape hypothesis where it's like we ate mushrooms and fell into symbiosis, but that these pathways might be involved. I think there's increasing openness to this idea that if you have this powerful system that's creating such drastic effects, maybe this is a m major lever of change. And maybe these levers were pulled on at some point, and, and maybe this is part of uh, why we're such strange apes. Maybe. <laughs> it's really interesting to hear the historical, sociological story for the inclusion of psychedelics and to find out sort of what role they might have played socially, because it's not something that you tend to catch when you're normally talking about psychedelics. Adam, is there a practical takeaway 
for listeners, given your research and given your practice? Yeah. You know, in light of all like the dangers that like that can happen and like, I'm actually kind of grateful that I'm, 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 I'm a really terrible meditator. I try, I'm just not very good at it, but I keep trying. <laughs> and so I'm not so, it's really, for practice, the only thing I advise people is like, uh, ask less, get more sometimes, at least in the beginning. <laughs> nice. But in terms of like practical takeaways for psychedelics, it's still very much a wild west. And it seems like the, the classic advice of like deep attending to the set in the setting, like what are the conditions you're bringing up and, and, and thinking, what is the entry going to be like? And what is the re-entry into the world going to be like for the experience? And there's a window that's opening potentially. And so what is your intention? What do you want to integrate? So there's a plasticity window. That's a promising and a perilous thing. What do you want? And then having that like worked out maybe beforehand. And so there could be a case where, you know, you don't necessarily need to do that. If you don't have like a family history of mental illness, you're just trying to like, you're doing as a kind of psychonaut exploration, like what's there. And that's a way to do it. And, 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 and if you don't have a lot of risk factors, that might be just fine. But, you know, some of, some of us have greater tendencies towards, you know, dark night of the soul type things. And I'm probably one of them. And a little more care would be needed and to, to take the time to make sure the environment is supportive, to make sure you have a plan for getting additional support if you need it. Things like that. <laughs> That's actually a brilliant way to frame the practical uh, question within what is a Wild West. It's hard to give advice to the Wild West because it's wild. Yeah, it's, it's a bunch of cats just running around. That's what we mean by wild, right? Hard to know. Adam, where can everybody find you? Somewhere on the internet, usually. Twitter is a good way to reach me. I've been known to use Facebook as a science blog. And sometimes I'll post a, a conversation to YouTube. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Everyone, thank you for listening. That was Adam Saffron, and this has been the Contemplative Science Podcast. And as always, we will see you next week. Thank you. So thank you for listening to the Contemplative Science Podcast. We're available on the podcast app of your choice, as well as on YouTube as a video podcast. If you're interested in exploring the rich landscape between science and contemplative practices, check out Monash University's Centre for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies. 